Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. I don't know if you know, if you've heard, but our nation does have an election on Tuesday, apparently. Um, I will tell you who is keenly aware of what is about to take place. Every pastor in our country. Pastors, uh, we do like to collaborate with one another and bounce ideas off each other and um, share thoughts on sermon notes and passages and whatnot. And, and I do fairly regularly get people uh, reaching out for my thoughts on a passage or a topic or something like that. But I have gotten more phone calls and emails about this Sunday, um, more than any Sunday since I have been in ministry. It's, I sense a literal fear among other pastors, and I join them in that, I understand it, a fear of, of how to approach this Sunday with what's coming Tuesday. Uh, One pastor literally asked if I would fly across the country and just preach for him this Sunday. (laughs) True story. Um, And I get it. I get it. It's terrifying. You have to address it in some way. I mean, you can't faithfully pastor the people that God has entrusted to your care if you don't at least try to guide them through what is upon us. It's too significant not to. But if you do address it, um, I think there's pastors who are afraid that they'll split their church or they'll get fired for addressing the very thing you have to address. Never, I mean, outside the Civil War itself and the Civil Rights Movement, never has our nation been so fiercely divided. This week, I have read arguments from people I respect. I mean, these, these, are, these are folks that I I read their stuff because I respect what they have to say. And I have read arguments that to be a faithful Christian, you should vote for Donald Trump. To be a faithful Christian, you should vote for Joe Biden. To be a faithful Christian, you should vote for neither. I've read all three of those arguments from from multiple people that I trust. And some of these arguments even go beyond you should vote this way to you must vote this way. There is a movement taking place in some conservative circles that is literally making it an issue of church discipline. Your vote an issue of church church discipline, arguing that if Christians vote a certain way that it should even be met with church discipline and even excommunication. We've lost our minds. Our nation is raging. This much is obvious, but our churches are raging. And that more than your vote is what burdens me this morning. I care 
far less about who you vote for than I do how you vote, if that makes sense. Far less about your politics and much, much more about the ethos of your politics. Look at verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I want you to know how impossible that statement was in that day. Not just that Greek and Jew were together in community loving each other, but that Greek and Jew were literally no more in this community. Paul is saying here in the church of Jesus Christ, there is not Greek and Jew. Meaning it's not, it's, it, it's not just that this is a place where we love each other despite our differences. This is a place that eradicates our differences. This is a place where differences go to die. We have no identity except Jesus Christ. Now insert Republican and Democrat into that verse. Here there is no Republican or Democrat. It's not just that here Republican and Democrats can get along, can agree to disagree. No, no, it's that here those cultural identities do not exist. Because we have one identity, one identity Jesus Christ and him alone. Is that even possible? In a culture where Christians find more commonality with an unbeliever who votes like them than a believer who doesn't. I don't think that's an overstatement. I think for many Christians, a Republican Christian finds more commonality with an unbeliever who votes Republican than a believer that votes Democrat. And vice versa, by the way. Our world is divided. That's obvious. I don't need to tell you that. But more troubling, our world has divided us. What can we do? Well, notice the connection that Paul makes between verse 11 and 12. In verse 12, he says, put on then, or another way to translate that would be, therefore, put on. Meaning, verse 12 is his application to verse 11. A verse 11 community where there is no identity save Christ is formed by verse 12's application. So I, I thought that, um, that I would focus there this morning. My desire, my longing, my heart, yes, for the church in general, but more so for us, for our community my desire is for us, is verse 11. To get us there, I'm going to preach verses 12 through 14. And what we see in these verses are very simple. It's not a complicated passage. A community whose identity is known above all else by the virtue of love. We're going to see two things. We're going to look at a culture of love and then cultivation of love. So culture of love, cultivation of love. Let's start with the culture that Paul is trying to create here. Verse 12. He says, put on. The imagery is clothing. Meaning he, he actually is concerned with how we are perceived. How we come across. The visible, external, observable perception of God's people. In short, he is speaking to the culture of our community. Culture speaks not to what we do but to how we do things. Not to our mission, but how our mission is pursued. Not to our theology, but to how our theology is acted out. In short, culture is less about our belief and practices and more about our way of being as we seek to enact our beliefs and practices. 
You see, when it comes to Christian ethics, we tend to define ourselves by two things. The do's and don'ts of Christianity. Christians are people who don't believe certain things and do believe certain things. Christians are those who don't do certain things and do certain things. And that's true. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, these are central to Christian ethics. But according to Paul, there is an added layer of nuance to our ethic. The culture of our do's and don'ts. Or to use the language of our passage, the clothing of our do's and don'ts. So what should be the clothing of God's people? How should we be perceived as we live out our faith in this world? I'm going to read these attributes. And my challenge to you is to listen with teachable minds and hearts, asking, is this the culture of American Christianity in general and your Christianity in particular? Is this the culture we are known for? Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Is that us? Is that you? In this cultural moment that is upon us, when people think of American Christianity in general, and your Christianity specifically, do they think compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness? Is there any room in our world for meekness now? Meekness and patience. Or to state it more concisely, do they think love? That's how Paul sums it up in verse 14. Above all else... Put on love. Love is the priority. Love is the aim. Love is the demanded culture of every Christian and every Christian church. He says, above all else, that that the above all else is what got me in my sermon prep this, this week. So convicting. Above everything, above every Christian thought, word, and deed, every ambition of the church is secondary to love. And just so you know, I'm not, I'm not reading too much into this passage. The, the primacy, the centrality of this culture of love is everywhere in Scripture. I think of Jesus when he said very plainly, by this they will know you are my, my disciples. This is your defining culture. This is how they know if you love. I think of the famous passage from uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, if I know it all. And if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned, if I give my life for Jesus but have not love, I gain nothing. Think of the implications of that passage. If we have perfect theology and have not love, we are bad theologians. If we obey perfectly and have not love, we have disobeyed. If we win the culture war and have not love, we have lost the culture. The point I'm trying to make here is that we're not playing games with this thing called love. A culture of love is not the icing on the cake of Christianity. It is Christianity. We are under a mandate from our God to put on love. This is utterly foreign to the world we inhabit. Love is not how you make a lot of money. Love is not how you advance in career. 
Love is not how you win the debate, and love is certainly not how you get elected. I know that this is not how our culture operates, but our passage is not speaking to American culture, it's speaking to Christian culture. And for us, love is not optional. Above all else, Paul says, put on love. So let's pause and just assess it. Let's just ask how we are doing with this mandate to love in our culture of hatred. Perhaps, if you're like me, you're scared to answer that question. Perhaps we have uncritically joined the ways of malice in our world. It's okay. Thankfully, our God is love. He is gracious. His love can handle our failure to love. But friends, let's change, shall we? We can be different. You know that, right? You can't change. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to reflect the world. The culture of a community and the culture of your life is not a permanent fixture. It can change. Let's consider how. So a culture of love is the expectation. Let's look now at the cultivation of love. Return again to our text. What is so compelling about these verses is that Paul is commanding us to put on virtue like their outfits. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, above all else. Put on love. What is discouraging about that command is that love is not something that comes natural. You have to put it on. What is encouraging about that command is that love is possible. You can put it on. You can be different. We can be different. But it doesn't just happen. Love takes practice. Does that concept seem strange to you? I fear what I'm about to say is going to be difficult for two, uh, two groups of people, both of whom are represented here. And so in order to not have that be a stumbling block um, to the real emphasis of the text, I wanted to, I wanted to um, take a brief moment and speak to two groups of people that are going to have hard time with the idea that we're going to have to work really, really hard at love. First, for us who love our Reformed theology, we are conditioned to cringe at any talk of self-effort. We rightfully believe that all things come by grace because all things do come by grace. But the fallacy we fall into is that this negates effort. That's simply untrue. Virtue requires a lot of hard work. You have to work really hard to be loving. Grace and effort are not at odds. They are married together as one. In fact, grace fuels the effort. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's his grace. You are beloved of God. In fact, that's sovereign grace as God's chosen ones. And then he tells his chosen to put on these virtues. That's the response. You don't put on virtue to become beloved. You are beloved. Therefore, work really hard at putting on virtue. The second group for whom I fear this will be difficult are those with more of a therapeutic bent. This, would, um, this, this is probably the younger among us. This group uh, rightfully despises religious hypocrisy, as they should. But the fallacy of this thinking is, that, uh, is the belief that if it's not wholly authentic, then it's meaningless. And what that does is it leads to a quest for authenticity that can just be absolutely paralyzing. 
Because if you're waiting for love to be 100% genuine before you give it a try, you'll never love. Instead, you'll find yourself in an endless cycle of introspection trying to purify your intentions. And so the language of put on, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and so forth, it feels inauthentic. You read put on as putting on a show. You don't want to fake it, nor should you. You don't want to put on love when inside you're not loving. And that's a good impulse. The Bible warns of those who honor with lips, but hearts are far off. So your revulsion to hypocritical Christianity is a good thing. But the same Bible that says, let love be genuine, also is telling you to put on love. And the connection is that by practicing love, love becomes more genuine. Love does not become more genuine by you, by yourself, introspectively, trying to make yourself more genuine in your love. Practicing love makes, more love, makes love more genuine. So heading off the reform objection and the therapeutic objection to what I'm about to say, I return now to our text and say to us this. In a raging, divided, spiteful culture, get to work putting on love. Do not overcomplicate the passage. It's really simple. Paul is telling us to work really hard at becoming a people of love. And speaking candidly, I think we have to admit we've got a lot of work to do. So let's get to work. I mean, seriously, y'all. Let's, let's work on love as hard as we work on anything in our lives. So if you are harboring bitterness in your heart towards someone, then this week... While our nation rages, you seek them out, confess your sin against them, and ask their forgiveness. If you've been neglecting the needy among you, then this week, while our nation rages, this would be a perfect week for you to start meeting their needs. If you have been in a dispute with someone, then this week, what a week, while our nation rages, for this to be the week where you reach out and seek reconciliation if they are open to it. And if, they're not, if reconciliation isn't possible, then this week you're going to pray for them every time you're tempted to harbor anger toward them. If, if, if you are neglecting your primary loves, your marriage, your children, your friendship, your neighbors, then this week, while our nation rages, this is the week for you to reprioritize those whom he calls you to love. Friends, malice is easy. Love takes practice. And I'm serious when I say I want us to go practice. And these are just proactive steps to putting on love. There is something else that is oh so crucial, especially in the climate of our day. In order to put on what we see in this text, you know, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and above all else, put on love. In order to obey this passage and put on these virtues, then we must, we must first put off malice, bitterness, hatred, hostility, anything else that is the antithesis of love. Here's why I say that. I am very, very concerned about what we are consuming. Again, when pastors talk these days, there is a despondency over the content that is discipling our people. How can we compete with one sermon a week over an entire week full of Christians being discipled, trained, catechized, 
in the ways of partisan cable media, um, toxic social media, blogs, podcasts. It's just an overwhelming flood of malice. Training you to think, speak, and act accordingly. I don't care how right your favorite pundit may be in your eyes. If they have not love, they are wrong, biblically speaking. So if we are going to put on love, then it necessarily means that we're going to have to put off the toxicity of our culture. And it is toxic. And by put off, what I mean by that is to literally put it off, to turn it off. Fast from the hatred of our culture that you may make room to cultivate love. Okay, let's close with much needed motivation. Why is love so paramount to the Christian ethic? Why is it demanded above all else to use the language of the passage? What's the big deal with the Bible's affinity for love? It's very simple. Love is important to God because God is love. Verse 13, bearing with one another. If one of you, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, why? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. We love because he loves. More specifically, we love because he loves us. Because he first loves us. We are known as a people of love, because we are the people who have known the deep, deep love of God. This must be our culture because this is our Savior. His politic is love. Make no mistake, Jesus was and is a political figure, a revolutionary, in fact. We call him king for a reason. No matter what happens on Tuesday, King Jesus reigns. But his reign is via the armament of his love. His weapon, his conquering weapon over the world and over the nations is his love. And to us, his people has been handed his political agenda. We represent him. And if we join the malice of the world around us, then we are making this horrific statement, the Lord Jesus is malice and he is not. Jesus' love and his political agenda is love. May TCPC represent him well in the days that are upon us. Let me pray. Lord, we have already confessed in our service this is not easy for us. We have confessed how we have fallen so short of love. But we don't want to be this way. We want to be different. We want a different culture. So make us a people of love. And that comes by knowing first your love. And so we now come to the table of your sacrifice, the table of your love, and ask that you would change us and make us more like the Jesus we serve, in whose name we pray. Amen.